Guardian Unlimited. Hello and welcome to The Guardian's brand new Jewish podcast. Sounds Jewish, as in you don't write, you don't call, you just podcast now. I'm Jason Solomons and in this month's show we discuss Donagate. Should Jewish names involved in the news make us feel uneasy? And did you hear the one about the Catholic, the Hasid and the stand-up comedian? People always want to know how Catholic were you. Catholic enough to know I was going to hell. (laughs) So I switched religions. That's a Yiddish <laughs> With me in the studio this month are the award-winning author and columnist Howard Jacobson. Welcome. And the critic and broadcaster Hepzibah Anderson. Welcome to you both. Uh, Howard, are you feeling very Jewish today? I'm feeling very Jewish every day. It's a blessing. You wake up and you think, yippee. I wake up and say how glad I am that I'm a Jew. I do, actually. Some days I do. I do actually think I bound into the world and think, here we go again, another day of disputatiousness, another day of anxiety, another day of feeling good about myself. It's OK. That's it's why good. we got it's you good, in. Big Jew. Exactly. And Hepzibah, how are you, are you feeling particularly hiney today? I am feeling extra hiney, having got very lost in South London on my way here, and, and I felt like I was in foreign land. Welcome to you both. Thank you very much for, for joining us on this. The initial uh, Jewish podcast, Sounds Jewish. It's been an uncomfortable few weeks, I think, for Jews who read the news since it was first revealed that the person at the heart of the latest Labour fundraising scandal was in fact Jewish. First came that sinking feeling, the unease when a fellow Jew is caught up in something apparently dishonest. Then came the growing disquiet when press coverage of the affair turned to some of the most aged clichés about Jews. You know, the ones about shadowy figures and some of my best friends being Jewish and more than a few conspiracy theories about Jews secretly pulling the strings of British society. Howard, why is it that we care when another Jew is slapped all over the front pages and on the BBC News at 10? Depends who, depends who you mean by we. I think if this happened in America, I'm not sure what would have, how it would be had it happened in France or somewhere else, but had it happened in America, I don't think anybody would have batted an eyelid. No, I think it's there's us. A, an Anglo-Jew. It's, it's an Anglo-Jewish thing because we are much more self-conscious about being Jewish than any other Jews on the planet, and we are more frightened that we will be rumbled. That's to say the English will discover that we're here, that when Cromwell let us in, we took him at his word and came, and look, here is one of us being patently and overtly and unmistakably Jewish and, oh, God, doing something with money. I felt all those things. I am ashamed to admit it, but I felt all those things. Please, God, no, no, don't let it be a Jew involved in a money scandal. It's outrageous that I should feel that or that any Jew here should feel that, but that's what it's like being an English Jew. However, I think only we are allowed to feel it. And when others who are not Jews feel that about Mr Abrahams and money, I get very anxious indeed. Hepzibah, did you uh, know straight away as soon as you saw David Abrahams' face that there goes another Jew? I did. No, actually, I heard the, the news bulletin while I was in remote Wales in a car with a, a non-Jewish friend, and I, I sort of probably almost ducked as I as it came on the news. Um, which, you know, as Howard says, it's a, it's a terrible... Uh, reaction, but but I think Anglo Jews are such they're completely unique uh, globally, and and also you know in this country we do have a, a 
uh, sort of un- unspoken, a quieter, but but nonetheless equally lethal kind of history of anti-Semitism. The whole of the blood libel goes all the way back here. How did your non-Jewish friend feel about your feelings? Well, he it's interesting because he's been living in New York for 15 years and I was actually there for a lot of the time over the summer and, and it made me think instantly because I thought, oh God, what's he thinking? And I thought, actually, he's, you know, he just got off the plane from New York. He's not, it's not going to be an issue for him and it, it just wasn't. But it comes from our, there are so few of us. And since there are so few of us, we want one another to, 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 to lie low. I was brought up to lie low. Mm-hmm. You lie low, and, and, and that way you do not bring your people into disrepute. Mm-hmm. You particularly lie low, I feel, because I feel sort of irrationally angry with Mr Abrams for not having himself kept his head down yes, but he, or he, maybe he, done something that's not got money in it. I mean, why shouldn't a Jew do things with money? Everybody else does things with money. Is it all right because you're, you're a Jew, you're, you, you're on here, you, you write books about uh, I Jewish don't bringing. do things with money in it. I'm no, a novelist. So that's fine. <laughs> Absolutely fine. And we are very, very close to the old picture of, in, in, in some people's account, very, very close to the, 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 the old money-lending Jew and that idea that the Jew, if he lends money or if he's got anything to do with money, he, he does so for for corrupt ends. That's quite sinister. I have found a lot of the coverage far more disturbing than, you know, once I got over the initial sort of cringing reaction. I mean, a lot of the coverage... it's been so poor. There hasn't really been any specific fact. It's all been peddling this uneasy kind of uh, suspicion and... Um, it's it's just been playing on those myths essentially, and there's been so little concrete reporting. So, Howard, are we perhaps too sensitive to this issue ourselves? Well, we are, and of course we are. But that doesn't that doesn't let anybody else off. Yeah. There was an article by my colleague on the Independent, Yasmin Alibi Brown, which struck me as curious because it seemed to find a way of bringing to this country that mere Scheimer and Walt conspiracy theory, which is that the Israeli lobby has influenced America's policy on the Middle East and influenced American foreign policy altogether. And she, I thought, was getting dangerously close to the theories peddled by that maybe well-meaning but rather dangerous and and foolish book. Mm -hmm. To assume that there are conspiracies here is a kind of madness. Jews are rather good at at funding. They've learned Mm -hmm. to fund. We are a charitable Mm -hmm. people. It's no surprise that a a party like the Labour Party would turn to people who who are just good at it. End End of story. Thank you very much, both of you. You're listening to Sounds Jewish, the Guardian's new Jewish podcast. Christmas is fast approaching and I am getting fat. I don't know about you, but it's the time of year that I quite like. I look forward to North London football derbies and getting presents and good stuff on the telly. Or is that just a fond memory? Do we Jews embrace Christmas or should we ignore it? Do we eat lots of turkey or do we turn our backs and munch on mozzah? It's hard to be a Jew on Christmas. My friends won't let me join in any games. I was brought up in an Orthodox Jewish home. Um, we kept absolutely no Christmas at all. There was no tokens Christmas. We didn't even watch the Queen's speech. This year, we're spending time with uh, my mum's house. There's no Christmas tree, but she has warned me that she has bought Christmas crackers. There will be a turkey, not kosher. Um, and there will be presents from my stepbrother and my brother for my children. And I have got Hanukkah presents for their children, wrapped up in papers, paper with dreidels all over them, uh, that they will be getting on Christmas Day. How schizoid is that? I'm a Jew. 
as I grew a bit older, um, I, I started to mix more with uh, non-Jewish friends who did celebrate Christmas. And you start then to get a bit of a pull because they're getting really great presents and Hanukkah presents were actually a bit poor compared to Christmas presents. They did get better presents. You know, they would get a TV and I'd get a jigsaw. I'm a middle-aged lady, a grandmother, a great-grandmother as well, orthodox lady. I live in Stamford Hill. I asked some of my grandchildren what the 25th of December was, and they, they didn't know that it was anything special day to the rest of the world. My wife being Christian, not practicing, like me, I'm not a, a practicing Jew, but she, she likes Christmas a lot, and I enjoy it because she does. And in Jewish household that I was brought up in, we always actually had a Christmas tree which I know is strange for some Jewish people to get a hold of, but we had a Christmas tree and really enjoyed it. And I've always associated that with warmth and and fun. And then you get into the problem of whether or not to send Christmas cards. I used to... What was odd, actually, I do remember thinking it was very strange that non-Jewish friends who knew that I was Orthodox Jewish, knew that I didn't celebrate Christmas, would nonetheless send me Christmas cards. And I did used to think... Why are you sending me a card because you're having a festival? It's like sending somebody a get well card if you have the flu. I'm a Jew, a lonely Jew. I'd be merry, but I'm Hebrew. On Christmas. The celestial voices of Jews at Christmas. Howard, how was uh, Christmas for you growing up in Manchester? Growing up in Manchester, it was wonderfully confused. <laughs> we did have Christmas. We would never, There were very fine distinctions in the middle of the confusion. It would have been impossible to have had a tree. A tree would have been going too far. But we had crackers. My father sometimes dressed up as Father Christmas. He liked that. He made a very good Father Christmas. Did he? Probably only a Jewish father can do Father Christmas the way a Father Christmas can be done, with the right kind of givingness and irony and falling over things and not getting down the chimney. And but all. he had the outfit and everything. He had the whole thing. Yeah, he had the whole... He had the, you went somewhere. There was some place where you could hire... Where Jewish fathers could hire Father Christmas thing. We used to hang stockings up. We got pretty paltry presents, but we got presents. And I loved all that. There was a sense that I think was dead, uh, a really sound intuition in our parents in that period. I'm talking about growing up in the in the 50s now, that we were Jewish, but we were also English, and that much of Christmas was just English culture as well as being as well as being a religious thing. And our parents wanted us to take part in the English cultural part of Christmas. Were things like that for you, Hepzibah, and have they changed somewhat? Well, I had a, I have a sort of racially mixed background anyway, and I grew up in Norfolk, and there was no way in Norfolk, you, you know, there were sort of two and a half other Jews at my school, and we were not going to not do Christmas. And you were so. surrounded by turkeys, no doubt. Surrounded by all those turkeys. We even had a tree, but then I, you know, when I went to college, I got mo- much more Jewishly involved, I got more religiously involved, and I actually banned Christmas in my household, and, and there have been no trees ever since. There was now a Hanukkah bush, it sort of crept back in. and But, but sort of around about that time, we also began having Christmases in Watford, 
with my mother's cousin who is Jewish but's married a Muslim. So we had these kind of completely schizophrenic Jewish Muslim Christmases and, and we all sort of rebelled mutually from that when somebody tried to instigate a peace dance. And that was the end of that. <laughs> so yours is... is so we is, had all the stress. Yours you is know. as multifaceted and multicultural as, as, as the sides of a dreidel. Yeah, I'm uh, not sure I'd recommend it, actually. But <laughs> it was it, immensely stressful. It, it seems that uh, nowadays we we have the sayings, happy holidays, which we've imported mm. from New York and, and America. Uh, do you think it's important for Anglo-Jews to mix in and do a Christmas and a Hanukkah as well? I mean, I feel quite privileged and quite spoiled. I used to get a few Hanukkah presents and then some Christmas. I like the idea of Hanukkah followed by Christmas. I like the idea of having both. I certainly don't think we should balk at Christmas at all. There might be some parts of it that are that make us feel awkward. Though even the religious part, God knows, it's a, it is part of it is a Jewish story. You know, without the Jews, there wouldn't be no Christmas. I and if you that. go and and I, I kind of like music Christmas, I like being able. This is the time where you can go and hear a Messiah, or mm. you can go and hear a B minor Mass, or the St Matthew Passion, and you sit and listen to the St Matthew Passion. And you're thinking, well, this is a this is a take. It might not be one's own take. This is this is a this is a Christian Germanic take on a Jewish story. I, we belong there. Christmas. What's a Christmas without a Jew in it? <laughs> My family, we pull crackers, we slap nachos, we do the whole thing uh, at, at Christmas time, uh, and so we should because. If I don't go, it just gives my mother another excuse to say, you're not coming? What do you mean you're not coming? I say, it's Christmas. I'm married to a non-Jewish wife, but still you're not coming. It's just another excuse for me to not come. So there we go. Uh, there's, uh, there's all sorts of ways uh, of making Christmas very Jewish for all of us. It took Austrian filmmaker Marcus Carney eight years to complete his documentary exploring his family's Nazi past. The end of the Neubacher project has been described as an epic home movie in which Marcus confronts some of the myths surrounding his grandparents' association with the Nazi party at the outbreak of the war. In the course of his difficult journey, Marcus discovers some dark truths about his family. If you ever marry an American or a Jew, his grandfather warned his mother, I will shoot you. I called Marcus in Vienna and asked him how he initially felt about his elderly grandparents. Well, as a child, I wanted to be just like them. You know, I didn't know anything of the troubled past. For me, they were just regular grandparents, and they happened to be hunters. So when I was a child, I wanted to be a hunter. So you, you found out about your, your own family. What, what specifically did you find out, the relationships with uh, the, the political parties at the time, and is it some of the, the some extremely kind of notorious or famous personnel? Well, my, uh, the, the, the most significant figure uh, would, would be my grandfather's brother, Hermann Neubacher, who I started researching on uh, at the beginning of my film project. Uh, he was the first Nazi mayor of the city of Vienna. Of course, but you found out he, w he went hunting with Hermann Goebbels, that he had a, a uh, rifle yes, given yes. to him? Hermann, Hermann Göring, uh, exactly, yes. Well, that was also my grandfather then, because my grandfather held up the tradition of hunting in the family, uh, professionally also. So they were very close because all these powerful people, uh, they were hunters themselves. So um, and was that it, was an important social environment. Of, um, of course, and it, it, it's very atmospheric in your film, the, the, yes. the, the hunting of, of, of beasts, the hunting of men, uh, the parallel is easily drawn. Did you discover that your, that your, your great uncle did, in fact, uh, d turn his atrocities away from animals and onto men? What I come to in the film is a very specific example where I focus on the so-called Aryanization of a, a perfumery shop, which was Aryanized by my grandmother, by, by the help of her future brother-in-law. Can you um, just tell us a little bit, uh, uh, Marcus, how, how, about the process of Aryanization? How did this happen? 
Well, it, it happened straight away in 1938, and it was hundreds or thousands of shops were, which were um, you know affected, and owners who were who, who were affected by it. And there was a these are Jewish process, Jewish shops, you mean? Absolutely, mm. Jewish shop owners. There was a certain procedure which could so-called Aryans could follow to take over such a shop. And they came up with, you know, the most wonderful explanations, what great Nazis they are. You obviously discover these things with some dread. You, you, you look on your past, you find out that your great uncle might or might, may have or may not have been involved in some atrocities. Uh, but you've dealt with it quite uh, as a historian, as another generation. I wonder about the impact of it on the immediate people, on your grandmother taking, uh, taking over that shop. Did she have any guilt or remorse about doing it? And particularly that of your mother, who, who's in the film, yeah. uh, a generation that had to keep silent about this sort of thing. Yes, my, my my grandmother's reaction was pure denial. And that's the most common reaction to anything related to the war, to National Socialism and the Holocaust in Austria at that generation. That's the legacy, denial. The so-called victim myth uh, is gratefully uh, t- taken over yes. for many, many years. And that certainly, as I said, you know, denial leads to, to silence, not being able to address certain parts of your identity. And that makes a big problem for the children of these people and and my mother was a, her strategy was you know she she learned a certain degree of denial but at the same time, she felt very guilty. It is certainly when then the, their, the next generation, their sons, their daughters, start prying and asking why they kept quiet, why uh, these things happened, exactly. which, is what, which is what it seems to me is happening now in Austria, or am I wrong? You seem to be uh, a, a voice, not alone. I spoke to a filmmaker, Stefan Uschitzky, who'd made the wonderful film The Counterfeiters, or Die Felscher, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. and he also is Austrian, and his grandparents, he discovered, were also uh, active members of the Nazi party. So there's there seems to be a new generation of filmmakers wanting to speak about this aspect of Austrian history. How are you received in Austria? Is there still a culture of denial around you and your findings? I, I think uh, times, uh, times are changing. I think my, my project is it's not a coincidence. It's a, it's a natural development that we individualize our own histories. If my film can, can help um, addressing uh, the, the family issues in every individual family, you know, uh, raising questions to, to the uh, grandparents' generation, who is still alive, very old, but still alive, and then the parents' generation, how they dealt with it and so on, I think it could help to, to make dealing with history, which is in the end just dealing with the present in a very conscious way, more accessible. Marcus Carney there, and you can hear him speak at a special event organised by the Jewish Community Centre for London at the end of January. To tie in with the JCC's season of events on memory, Marcus will be joined by a panel including a survivor of the Holocaust as well as members of the next generation to discuss what happens when memories turn into history. See jcclondon.org.uk for more details. Say Jewish stand-up comedian and you picture Jerry Seinfeld or Woody Allen or Jackie Mason. But Yisrael Campbell is different. Not only is he strictly orthodox in full-length black coat and black hat, he was originally born into a Catholic family from Philadelphia. So, does he sound like the genuine article? Our reporter Tanya Gold finds out. Is it warm in here? Yes. It's not just that I'm the only one just for Poland in the 17th century. I was seeking spiritually and searching for a spiritual solution. I had 
found out as a mid-teen, as a 16-year-old, that I was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I had to stop using alcohol and drugs, and that prompted the beginning of this spiritual search. And I would just kept looking and seeking and searching and being more and more fascinated with Judaism and Jewish stuff and Holocaust literature and... And ultimately, the religion was a spiritual path that I could follow. I know that on the second night of Hanukkah, the first night candles just as new as the second night candle. <laughs> They're both brand new. <laughs> Last night's candle's gone. It's never coming back. <clears throat> but suddenly it occurs to me, if this is a people, this is a religion, this is a culture that cares so much about the feelings of the candle. <laughs> Imagine how they must treat people. <laughs> not so well, I find out. I mean, not all the time. Right? We can be very tough on people. But don't embarrass the candle. <laughs> What are the responses that you've had from the Orthodox Jews to some of your comedy? Um, they, they seem to be pretty accepting. Um, they sometimes, you know, they expect I, I present a pretty Orthodox picture and they don't expect me to say nice things about the Reformed Jews. Or, you know, in, in Israel, sometimes I'll be performing to a right-wing audience and they'll be upset that I mention that hundreds of Palestinians were killed in the month that we were married when, when over 100 Israelis were killed. These kind of things sometimes don't fit the picture that I present. You know, the long black coat, the black hat, the payas. They expect something very specific, and when they don't get it, sometimes, you know, that upsets them. Are there certain jokes that you know will get a big laugh from the Reform and no laugh at all from the Orthodox, or vice versa? I do one bit about my second circumcision, and that's, you know, the joke involves the word penis. That's the one joke that in a very religious audience usually gets left out. She took me into the office, she gave me that robe you know you wear in a doctor's office that's open in the back. For a circumcision, you just wear it open to the front. <laughs> she looked me dead in the eye and she said, wash your penis for three minutes. <laughs> I don't think I've ever washed my penis for three minutes. That was ten seconds. After three minutes, I'm not watching anymore. What do you think is distinctive about Jewish humor? I don't know exactly what's distinctive. I mean, what people always say is that the the persecuted or the you know the minority or the you know all those things are what brings out I don't know because there's a lot of minorities and I don't know all of them but I do know this Jews are funny like almost every Jew I've ever met has at least five minutes of comedy in them could you tell me a little bit about the Israeli-Palestinian stand-up comedy tour the Israeli-Palestinian comedy tour started in January, this past January, not quite a year ago. Charlie Wardy, who's an Israeli, an American Israeli, grew up in Chicago. And it turns out that he grew up in the same neighborhood as a man named Ray Hananiah, who's a Palestinian-American. And in June, we actually went into East Jerusalem and we did some shows in a Palestinian uh, Christian hotel. And before Palestinians, which was amazing... 
our joke is that we were going to bring peace to the Middle East in six shows, and now we're up to show 15. It's pretty much the actual state of affairs. We're not going to bring peace through some silly little comedy tour. But what Ray talked about this past week was the idea of normalization. Palestinians see Israelis and Jews as people, and we see Palestinians as people, and it and it's the beginning of some kind of normalization, and which is the last thing political leaders want because it's hard to fight an enemy that's a real-life human being. If, they, if we recognize they're human beings and they recognize we're human beings, then we're in a lot of trouble because we're not going to be able to fight each other the way we've been fighting. So it's been an uh, amazing process for us and hopefully for some of the people that have seen us. Yisrael Campbell there, the Catholic convert into Jewish humour. Howard, can you learn Jewish humour? Do you think when you go through a conversion class, you get the jokes? No. That doesn't mean he isn't funny sometimes, but it never quite sounds to me the real thing. Not quite. It's close. It's not bad, but there's a, uh, there's a, there's a spookiness about it. Not just, I think, because he's Catholic and not Jewish. I, I certainly don't want to keep him out or anything like that. By all means, have a crack. The, the queer thing is trying to be a comedian when you're orthodox. Because for me, I always think of the, the joke, the comedy, is our argument with God, particularly mm. if we're Jews. That's one of the reasons Jews are so good at, at comedy. It's a very serious business for us being funny. We argue with God through comedy. I'm not sure that the orthodox are allowed, really, to argue with God, or at least not argue with God as vehemently as I would like to think comedy is arguing with God. So I'm not quite sure how you can reconcile the two. He goes, he doesn't do badly. I mean, he gets some of the way, but one, but one feels somehow that there are, there's, a, there's a point he can never really get, the real blasphemous point. That moment when, you know, comedy breaks everything apart. He wouldn't be able to do that. It wouldn't be possible, would it? strikes you? me he wouldn't be able to know the jokes that only a Jew can tell. I still think he would be nervous of doing some of those games. Well, not just nervous. I mean, between ourselves, he hasn't suffered enough. <laughs> That's what makes the Jewish joke so terrific. You do it because you're down. The Jew- Jewish joke is the strategy for coming up again when you've been down. If you haven't been down, you can't really do it. Hepsman, there's an episode of Seinfeld, which I've always liked, where there's um, where Seinfeld suspects that his dentist has converted for, to Judaism just for the jokes. <laughs> there's also a sense that American humour is Jewish humour. Where does this man, Yisrael Campbell, fit into that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, it, you know, it's, it is Jewish, American humour, but it's very sort of devoutly secular, secular Jewish. And, and, you know, here he is, you know, possibly reinvigorating it. But from an orthodox perspective... Um, I, I do agree with her. Though. I think there's something kind of studied, a, a little bit studied about it. But he has this immense energy, and you know, he he himself referred to to the the, the essence of Jewish humour being uh, something to do with being a minority. And and heaven knows he is a minority within the Jewish community mm-hmm. <laughs> as a kind of Catholic convert. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's curious stuff. A history of um, of stand-up comedians, Howard, would go um, in America would would feature very highly with, with Jewish comedians from Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Woody Allen, all the way through to Seinfeld. A, uh, an English uh, examination of, of humour and stand-up would not have so many Jews in it at all. And it's not just stand-up either, is it? I mean, it's the comedy that pervades American the, the American writing yes. and particularly American TV. I mean, all American, t- all American funny sitcom, even if it's phrasy where there are no Jews, <laughs> is clearly made by Jews. Yep. And there's something very strange about English culture. You never see sitcoms made by 
You rarely see sitcoms made by Jews about Jews. I do, but it's something I've always admired about your writing. You've managed to find an Anglo-Jewish tone of humour, which is almost sort of ineffable. It's almost... Uh, No-one really kind of strikes that mix of... Uh, we always try and kind of... Uh, you know, if I do Jewish jokes, like you kind of go into a into a Woody Allen routine or a Seinfeld routine or even a Philip Roth routine if it's written. But uh, to find an Anglo-Jewish cadence and a lilt for the humour, uh, I think is, is kind of what, is one of our great searches. Well, the way it happened with me, it's simple how it happened with me. I was someone who was steeped in English literature and, and, and English comedy for me was Dickens and George Eliot and I loved all that and then I got very angry with myself for loving all that and for not being Jewish. So you lace what's happened with me inadvertently is a Jewish rage has got laced with Jane Austen and, and Dickens and that's, a com that's, a, that's an unusual combination. It works for me. <laughs> It remains for me to thank our guests for today, Howard Jacobson and Hepzibah Anderson. Thank you very much. And to the Jewish Community Centre for London for producing the programme. I'm Jason Solomons. Thank you for listening and we'll see you all next month. Guardian Unlimited.